This episode of New Politics was released on the 22nd of July, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the wash-up from the Fadden by-election, more outsourcing corruption from the Big Four, this time it's from Deloitte, the end of the Commonwealth Games as we know it, government funding for private schools at the expense of public schools, and what could the latest opinion polls mean for the voice to Parliament? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, gold medalist for the 2023 Commonwealth Games held in Melbourne. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The Fadden by-election is all over and we might be the only people that still got any interest in it, but electoral events always mean something, even if it's not very much at all. But this by-election was almost like a rerun of the result from 2022, from 2019 and before that from 2016. And this is a seat on the Gold Coast in Queensland that rarely swings very much and it's a seat that is also quite conservative. It has been won by the Liberal National Party by a 13% margin by the new candidate, Cameron Caldwell. News Corporation is reporting this as a massive win for Peter Dutton and a massive blow for the Labor Party and the end of the Anthony Albanese honeymoon period. But if anything, it just seems to be business as usual, a stock standard by-election result where not much has changed and not much excitement to go with it. Last week, we were rather underwhelming in our predictions for it. Although I stand by what I said in that it has probably given Peter Dutton a stay of execution. I don't think it has improved his position so much that he'll be a viable prime minister, let alone a viable candidate to be prime minister in the next election. But it's given him a couple of more setbacks to be able to live through, I think. I note that it seems that anti-voice rhetoric has taken off since Fadden. Whether that is because they realise that it's just a stay of execution and they have to try and keep delaying the inevitable, and it's the inevitable no matter who you are, or whether they realise that that was their one chance to give him a, a an extended term and are now just trying to get any win out of anything, anyhow, and any way, I'm not quite sure. It certainly didn't change very much. I don't think the Prime Minister's job is in any way threatened. There's no rumblings from the Labor Party as to we were expecting him to do much better. It's never a shock that an opposition, even an unpopular opposition, wins a by-election. It may say something about the people of the Gold Coast in terms of why there was a by-election. Having said that, the new candidate, who I know not very much about, only that he was disendorsed 10 years back for not upholding liberal values, I think is the most child-friendly way of putting it. The voters of Fadden may have looked at that candidate and said, look, clean break. We prefer this, this side of politics to that side of politics. We're prepared to give him a go. The other thing that's worth mentioning is that it was a very, very low voter turnout. Only about 68% of voters actually showed up to vote. And then of those, about 2 or 3% voted informally. So it wasn't a by-election that set the world on fire. Certainly Labor is facing expected and even justified criticism on their handling of the cost of living crisis. But it didn't rev the people up enough to go out and vote en masse against. There was a 2% swing towards the candidate, which is statistically irrelevant. It's changed very little. It's given a new Liberal candidate a seat. Uh, it's maintained the Liberal Party's seat numbers in Parliament. It has stopped Labor gaining another seat in Parliament. Apart from that, it wasn't the end of Anthony Albanese and it wasn't the end of Peter Dutton. Oh, but even still, I agree with all of those 
issues that you raise, but in politics, a win is a win is a win, unless it's the win that we saw in the 2020 Eden Monero by-election, which saw the Labor Party win that by-election just narrowly, only for the Daily Telegraph to publish a front-page article the following morning saying that the Labor Party had lost and it was a crushing blow for Anthony Albanese. But the Daily Telegraph, they've actually reported this election result more accurately. So obviously the Liberal National Party won the by-election, but a leader who is having a lot of political problems, and that's Peter Dutton, they need to magnify any kind of victory into something more substantial than it actually is. And this will keep Peter Dutton in the job for a little while. And this will probably work out better for the LNP in the long term because it gives potential challengers more time to get their act together. People like Susan Lay or Angus Taylor. And it also gives Peter Dutton a chance to stabilise his own leadership if the Liberal Party will allow for that to happen. And I think we also have to remember that Anthony Albanese was close to losing the leadership of the Labor Party if the Labor Party had lost the seat of Eden Monero in 2020. And it wasn't so much that he was performing poorly, it was just that Scott Morrison was so far ahead in the polls at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the expectation was that the Labor Party should just forget about the 2022 election and focus on the 2025 election instead. And that would have meant generational change, going for new leadership, but Labor ended up winning the Eden Monero by-election. Nobody expected Scott Morrison to be so bad as Prime Minister and the Labor Party did end up winning the 2022 federal election with Anthony Albanese as the leader. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is going to be the same trajectory for Peter Dutton and this will also happen in his case, but it's just a reminder that a small victory, no matter how small it is, can lead to bigger things later on in politics. I don't think Labor is complacent over this, by the way. I mean, there, there is a lot of talk of, well, we weren't really expecting it, and but you can bet that they are working very hard to make sure that any future by-election is victory or even, even closer again. So I, I'm not quite sure what lessons the party can learn. The Labor candidate was highly praised by everyone, as far as I can tell, on her side for running a very good and professional and effective campaign. And she wasn't really expected to win it. So it's possible that there's big things in her future. I think, too, that independents have to think more strategically. Instead of 13 independents running, they should all get together and work out who'd be the one or two best to run. Because I'm I haven't done the breakdown yet, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of votes that would have gone to Labor or the Greens went to independents um, and they split the vote. And of course, none of them were able to quite get enough to get a momentum to, to win. It's quite telling, I think, when you have a 26 people or 13 people or 15 people or however many, and then it just goes back to the same two major parties, which is the whole point of being an independent. So I don't know what the solution is except to work out who the most viable one is, run them, and if they don't win, go to the next one. Oh, that's exactly what happened at the seat of Warringah in the twenty. 19 exactly. election as well. But a few people have asked us whether the Fadden by-election result will give us any pointers towards the next federal election. And sorry to say, but there's not very much that we can read into this at all. And we could look at the Australian Greens vote dropping off by 4%. That was actually quite an interesting situation. Or mm. the presence of the Legalised Cannabis Party, which ended up getting 7% of the vote in their first election attempt but aside from that not too much the first point is that there's really not that much change in the vote there was a swing against the government of around two to three percent and that's under the average anti-government swing that happens at by-elections but even if there was a dramatic swing either way either for the government or against the government all this is doing is reading the mood of the electorate today and in a very small part of Australia that is really unreflective of the Australian community and the next election isn't due until 2025 anyway and I think this also applies for the seat of Aston as well and that was a dramatic loss for the Liberal Party but it was reflective of the politics of the day back in April this year but there's just so much that can happen in politics between now and the next federal election in 2025. But it's good fun speculating on all of these issues, David, but ultimately a by-election result so far out from the next election doesn't really mean that much at all. Yeah, let's be fair. It could be the turning point for the Liberal Party, and that, but I doubt it. It's the wrong seat to tell from. If it was a very marginal seat, for example, 
or even appointing the safe liberal seat like Aston was might tell us something, but it doesn't tell us very much. One of the big four consultancy firms is in the spotlight again. This time it's Deloitte for conflicts of interest and misuse of government information that it's acquired during some of these consultancies with the federal government. And this follows on from all of those breaches by PwC that were uncovered earlier this year. And most of this information is being uncovered through Senate estimates, and it's mainly through the work of the Australian Green Senator, Barbara Pocock, and Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill, and they're forensically asking all of the questions. You're earning five times the value of the Prime Minister. Does that seem like a fair recompense? I'm I'm not here to... uh, Firstly, I don't set my partner income. And I'm not here to compare my income with the Prime Minister's, with a Premier, with a Government Secretary, um, uh, with any of our clients um, who... And and I I absolutely get the public interest around this. I'm focused on making sure our partners are are remunerated for the work that they do in a competitive way. That's and, my and our partners and the are average is close to a million dollars, nine hundred and fifty thousand. Yes. Right. Senator O'Neill, can I just uh, ask a supplementary sure, question? And then then. I, want to go to a I think the reason that the Senator is pursuing this issue is that yes. the Australian people are wondering about the value that's generated by a salary of two point eight million a year. And when they know a nurse is earning 80000 and pays 20% of that in tax. So uh, can you try on, uh, and I understand what you're saying, Mr Grimley, that your partners are very happy to pay you $2.8 million. They are on an average of almost a million themselves. The test, however, is not your partners. It's the Australian public. This is public money making up a good quarter of your income. What do you say to the Australian public about the questions Senator O'Neill is asking and the value of your salary? and your output, your your effort? Senator, I don't set my partner income. I'm not asking you that, Mr... Well, but it suggests I'm deciding what the number should be and where the value might sit. But I just wanted to make... I'll I'll answer your question. Uh, We were a two and a half billion... Call it roughly a two and a half billion dollar firm. We're a 9,000 person firm. We have 700 partners. I should add my role is, also, is to lead Oceania, which also includes our New Zealand firm. The Prime Minister earns 560000 He's in charge Senator, of the country. Just, so the, I'm just, if you could finish your answer, what do you say to the Australian public? What I say is I, it's not my role to judge what my, what my uh, income should be. Um, I, I believe it's a fair reflection for what I do. There have been calls for stronger legislation to deal with outsourcing. There have been calls for a Royal Commission into government outsourcing as well. And there's also many people from within PwC and Deloitte that are suggesting that all of this is just the tip of the iceberg. And we haven't even started looking at the other places like EY or KPMG or Accenture or McKinsey. And and these are some of the top earners in federal government outsourcing of $21 billion each year. So that's a lot of money. And I realise that there needs to be some government outsourcing out there, but there also needs to be greater checks and balances and controls over how this money is spent. Thanks to various governments slashing the public service and then bringing in consultants. We've said before that government needs to consult with experts from outside on occasion. Both you and I have consulted. I didn't quite get $1.3 billion. I got close, but... We'll get there one day, David. Should have joined the Australia Club. But the consulting that these firms were doing seemed to be well beyond the pale of what should be done and what a professional and competent and well-run public service should have been doing uh, in a lot of the cases for a lot less money. People who know this stuff better than I do say that there's no way of tracing all the money that these firms have been paid. It's in the billions. And most of the work they're doing, it seems to me, was done by the public service until Howard in particular and then Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison started slashing the public service. We can go back to Malcolm Fraser's razor gangs and and Bob Hawke and Paul Keating too, bringing in these firms. Now, we can go down the rabbit hole of who did more and who did worse and who did what, but my point is is that they removed a working system but didn't replace it with anything better and, in fact, replaced it with something that seems to have been a lot worse. It started to claim scalps. Anthony Clan reported that one of the... Uh, the head of the tax office was quietly removed this week 
But he should have been because the tax office did not come out of this very well. We may be heading to a change. It's whether the current government has the political will to untangle the Australian parliament with all its functions from these firms. The government response to some of these issues in outsourcing has been to bring in a lot of these services in-house. That's their rhetoric anyway, and they did announce that they would uh, make a few changes here. And why wouldn't you? You've got all of these problems, corruption and loss of confidential government information to corporate interests, and to me this would be the thing to do. And their plan is to employ at least 10,000 more public servants, and you could also set up stronger legislation. And There has also been one suggestion that the government could employ people or could employ more people to manage these external contractors and consultants, but then you'd end up being just like a Kafka novel where you get people employed to manage a group of external managers who then need another group of managers to manage them, but then this solution would defeat the purpose of outsourcing in the first place. And then there's also the cost of all of this. So I think it would be better to bring in a lot of these consultancies back in-house. And Peter Dunn's response has been predictable. He slammed this idea of increasing the public service by 10,000 people. And it seems that he'd much rather have a situation where billions of dollars are leaked to the private sector, government secrets and confidential information are shared and monetized by the private sector. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with all of that. And we also have to remember that an expert is still an expert, whether they work at Deloitte or PwC or KPMG or whether they work at the Department of Treasury. So I think Jim Chalmers just has to ignore the populist garbage that Peter Dutton is offering at the moment and just take all of these outsourcing services back into the hands of the public. Now, I realise it's not going to be all of them, but I think there needs to be a strong push to bring this back in-house. Yeah, it's the only argument. And it will require a clean-out of some senior public servants. We've also had Catherine Campbell stood down this week without pay. I think she'll be the second, really, after the other guy from the tax office, of several. And this has got to happen. And as hard as it is to say to people you don't have a job anymore, they haven't really shown that they deserve the job. So they've got to go. I haven't noticed any online criticism, even from the right, about poor, martyred Catherine Campbell thrown under the bus by the government who is at fault somehow. It's been a fairly accepted thing that she had to go. Australia loves its gold medals, but the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, has got other ideas with the cancellation of the Commonwealth Games in 2026. And there's been a major cost blowout going on from the original estimate of $2.6 billion up to $6 billion. And other reasons include other priorities for the government and a waning interest in the Commonwealth Games. And to be honest, David, I didn't even know that Melbourne was hosting the Commonwealth Games. And, and I follow a little bit of sport, you know, not that much, but I just can't remember any salient moments from the Commonwealth Games over the years. They don't do Greco-Roman wrestling or synchronised swimming, and any major event that doesn't include Greco-Roman wrestling and synchronised swimming can't really be taken that seriously. Pretty much. One of the things, I don't follow sport at all, but one of the things I have noticed is the level of graft and corruption at the senior levels of elite sport, the Olympic Games, FIFA. And I'm not talking about the players, and I don't think the competitions are rigged as such. There's drug use and steroid use and things like that, but I don't think it's like the professional wrestling where the two wrestlers walk into a ring and each one knows who's going to win and then they've just got to improvise the show for uh, half an hour or so to lead to its inexorable. I don't think there's a lot of that going on. Having said that, with the pernicious influence of gambling, there may be more than I think. But the number of hangers on, the countless coaches, the countless assistants that are all paid to go, the extra costs which in other contexts might be known as bribes so when premier andrews came out and said look the cost has blown out to six billion and could go as high as seven he was absolutely right to put a stop to it rather than to let it run through and then have the people of victoria have to pay for it for the next 
two decades, which is essentially what happened with the Olympic Games in Sydney. The costs blew out for not much tangible benefit. It's only in the last few years that the district around all the facilities has started to get some use. It was no doubt a difficult decision, but as he said, and people are arguing against this, he'd rather see the money go into regional health in Victoria and regional housing in Victoria. And of course, a lot of the criticism of cancelling the games, some of it's coming from the athletes who, let's be fair, would be very disappointed. They probably now have a sense of what it was like to be a musician or an actor or a stand-up comic or a, anyone in the entertainment industry during COVID, where something that you're expecting gets ripped away from you. Oh, absolutely. And you and I might not be into sport that much, but this is obviously not good news for athletes in Australia, and I'll accept that. But Victoria only stepped in in early 2022 because no other city around the world or in the Commonwealth wanted to take on the Commonwealth Games. And sure, why is something that they agreed to take on in 2022 is something that's too expensive to run just 18 months later? And whether you like sport or not, you know this is an event that highlights a city or a state in Australia. So I'm sure there'd be benefits from that. But I think if there's no economic benefits or if it's going to cost too much well why would you proceed with that and as sydney as you mentioned david we're still paying for the hosting of the olympic games and the homebush precinct and we're just around the corner from there where the games were held it's like still like a ghost town and you rightly pointed out the facilities out there do get used but all the benefits that were meant to be delivered to those areas just never eventuated and this is the story not just in sydney but virtually every city that has hosted the olympic games so I know it's not the Olympic Games, but why would Melbourne want to replicate this sort of situation? And the other factor is that the media response to this decision has been over the top. Now, I've always believed that if you promise to do something, you should deliver it. So there should be accountability for Daniel Andrews over this decision. But ever since the decision was made to have the Commonwealth Games in early, when that decision was announced in early 2022, the conservative media in Melbourne, they've been constantly attacking the Andrews government for taking on the games, saying that it was unaffordable and should be cancelled at the first opportunity. Here's the conservative commentator, Neil Mitchell, having a go at the Andrews government. But I've got an idea. The government won't like it. I want your reaction. Cancel the Commonwealth Games. Should we cancel the 2026 Commonwealth Games in Victoria. I would argue, whatever their benefits, we just can't afford them. The cost is headed towards $3 billion. And the way the blowouts work in this state, I'm sure it'll be well ahead of that figure. After all, it's three years off. So assume $3 billion plus. And yeah, there is some some return. I mean, you'll get some infrastructure for a start. But I'd be surprised if more comes in than goes out. And for $3 billion, think what infrastructure you could spend anyway. In this environment, the Commonwealth Games need a very, very close look. Should we cancel them? There'll be more tax rises to come tomorrow. Spending is being cut. Even libraries are short of money. The RSPCA is struggling for money. Sick animals will suffer because of the cuts. Health is struggling. Certainly sick humans are suffering already. Put it together, there could be hundreds of state projects and funding scrapped for them. We don't know yet. The budget will be tough, taxes will go up, spending will be cut. In that environment, can we really afford the Commonwealth Games? Even the regional cities that will benefit from it, like uh, Geelong, Ballarat, they say they can't afford it. I don't think we can afford it. I don't think we can afford the risk that it'll be run properly and therefore be financially beneficial. The benefit should be in regional facilities, but even a couple of swimming pools are going to be temporary. But who's going to build all this anyway? They now need to sit down with games authorities and say, as many cities have before, we've got a problem here. Find out what it would cost to get out of it. Other cities have done it. Other cities have struggled to make money. Why should this be any different in Victoria? Now, the Games may be a nice idea, although I can't imagine huge crowds turning out for what is really a jumped-up school sports, but even if you accept they're a nice idea, we just can't afford them. And now that the Andrews government has followed their advice, the media is now taking on a different approach, saying that the Commonwealth Games shouldn't have been cancelled and it's 
cause reputational damage to Australia's image overseas? Well, I can tell you one thing that will cause reputational damage to Australia's image, and that's voting no to mm. voice to parliament. That's one issue that will definitely ruin Australia's reputation within the international community. The Australian Financial Review said that it was a foolish decision to take on the Commonwealth Games in the first place, and that's probably true. But that would also mean that cancelling the Games is a clever decision. So the duplicity of the media in this situation is quite breathtaking. We shouldn't expect anything different, of course. And this could be an ongoing issue for the Victoria government over the next few years. But I can imagine there's going to be a lot of cafe and gym owners who are going to be interviewed in the next few months in the media about how the loss of the Commonwealth Games is going to drastically affect their business. It's always happened in the past, so I think we'll expect to see it in the future. Is anything really cancelled till a cafe owner speaks out about it or a gym owner? It's been remarkable how this has fallen along party lines. It's almost as if there is a campaign to oppose anything that Dan Andrews and Labor does. Again, I'm sure that there are bitterly disappointed athletes. It's quite possible that the Commonwealth Games will be no more after this. And I think that this decision could also be doing the world a favour. Some of the most corrupt organisations in the world, as you mentioned before, David, are some of these major sporting organisations. The International Olympic Committee, FIFA and the World Cup, the ASEAD, which hosts the Asian Games, the Commonwealth Games as well. The idea is to promote goodwill and harmony, but in most cases there's a strong political dimension and economic dimension to all of this as well. And holding the World Cups and the Olympic Games in Russia... They didn't offer a deterrent to a war in Ukraine and and the World Cup in Qatar didn't improve human rights in that country. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of corruption and graft that is associated with these games. So there might be a rethink about how these games are hosted in the future. But in the here and now, personally, I think that it's a better decision to spend that money on more important issues in social housing, education, hospitals and I know that a lot of sports people and fans won't agree with this, but it's just a question of whether Victoria will forget about this cancellation over the next couple of years and whether they see more value in social housing and education or a bunch of gold medals from a two-week period in 2026 that very few people will remember in the future. He made the right decision to correct, which was potentially a very bad decision. I do get the commercial stations being a bit upset. They'd lined up all this advertising. So they now have to rework everything and rebudget for the lack of advertising income. So I get that Channel 7 might be a little bit annoyed. I don't understand why the ABC is so upset about it. They don't rely on the advertising nor the sport for viewers, or they're not supposed to. Of course, sport is used to distract. There are more sports reporters in the mainstream media than any other type of reporter. There's a lot of space taken up by sporting news that just isn't relevant to anybody, including those who are involved in it. But ultimately, I would rather see the government of Victoria spend on local sport, spend on housing, spend on health, spend on infrastructure, than spend on an ego trip for 25 or 30 people. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. It's been revealed that government funding for private schools across Australia has doubled over the past decade and Australia now has one of the least equitable schooling systems across 38 OECD countries around the world. And it's not a case where this has just happened overnight. It's been the steady change in the way that schools are funded by federal and state governments over the past 25 years or so. And most of this was kick-started by the Howard government in 1996 with the idea of having choice for the type of schooling parents wanted to have for their children and giving more money to private schools to make them cheaper and more affordable, only for the school fees at private schools to go up and up and up and up. 
and this made them more unaffordable. So parents will always have the right to choose the education for their children, but they shouldn't be supported in this way through public funding. There needs to be reform to how public funds are distributed to the schooling system, but politically it's a very difficult change to make. I'm not quite sure why. I think there's probably a group of aspirational parents who would love their kids to go into private schools, but they can't yet afford it. And they're hoping that the promise of more government money into private schools will mean that their kids will be able to go. This is a false promise and shows what is really the heart of the issue, that private schools don't need to be publicly funded. If you leave the system, why should you be supported in that? I know that one of the arguments is that, oh, without private schools, the whole system would collapse. That's not quite true. If you put the public money that went into private schools back into the public system, that is enough to improve the public system. There's a whole range of issues to it. Another thing is that it's the same curriculum it's the same pool of teachers. You're getting fancier buildings, perhaps, but are you getting a better education? Funding to private schools needs to be stopped. It's been a vexed issue since Menzies started giving local Catholic schools funding to get the DLP support in the 50s. But it was Howard who, on the, this false notion of choice, because you still had to be able to afford it. Oh, well, that's exactly the point. But I think that John Howard's idea of choice just masked the true nature of what he wanted to achieve in politics. And that was that ideological commitment and pursuit of neoliberal practices where he'd funnel more and more money into private health care, aged care or early childhood education and into private schools. And he'd always say that this is all about providing choice. And that's an easily digestible message to send out to the electorate. And all of this funneling of public funds into the private sector supposedly all about choice. And I think that choice is probably one of the most damaging words of the 1990s onwards. And where's the choice for people committed to public education and public services? These choices have been diminished so that other people can make a private choice, which in most cases have turned out to be an illusion anyway. So most of these private schools have got too much money, not all of them, admittedly, but around 40% of private schools have been overfunded to the tune of $3 billion. And they're not going to give that money back, of course. So that's why we get some of these private schools building a second swimming pool because one just isn't enough or getting their 15th rugby field or a new science or tech laboratory or six new school buses. And all of this is at the expense of the public education system. The federal government spends $27 billion on schools education each year. $10 billion goes to public schools and $17 billion goes to private schools. And the states and territories governments, they do provide a lot of funding towards schools education too. And that's around $32 billion across all state and territory governments. But that's quite a large discrepancy in federal government funding that goes towards private schools. This is where we can blame the Labor government who blinked on Gonski. The Gonski report was pretty much generally accepted by most people in education as being a fair and, and reasonable approach to fixing. I had problems with it still. But in fact, he said, no, look, there are more equitable models of funding. And he, he presented one. And it was the Labor government who blinked on it and then didn't follow through with which would have been, at the very least, a good start for education reform. Of course, and by the time Labor lost the next election, it was totally forgotten about by the Liberal government and basically ignored where they then just shoveled money through to their mates in their old schools without much thought. And also the Howard government established the socio-economic status for funding of private schools where schools were funded according to which socio-economic areas students came from. But this just ended up being another administrative trick to boost private school funding. And the Gonski reforms that you mentioned before, David, they were introduced in 2012 under a Labor government. And the idea was to make school funding more fair and take the politics out of the funding process. But it seems that it's made the funding discrepancy between public and private schools even greater. And I think one reason why conservative governments have been able to push their agenda so easily in the education field is that most parents are not educationalists or involved in the education systems. And I think that narrative about having choice, that feeds into some of those insecurities about choosing the best education for 
their child. That's understandable. And also that fear of missing out. And it's also a case where it's the parents who vote, not children. So these policies have been directed towards people who won't be directly affected by these decisions. It's not the parents that sit in the classrooms, it's actually the children. And there are also policies that have had poor outcomes overall and definitely poor outcomes for the public education system. Wealthier suburbs have wealthier schools and government funding should reflect that, that areas, Indigenous single teacher schools in the West of, say, New South Wales, don't need to get $3 billion a year because there's just no way they could spend that kind of money, but they're not getting enough. These schools aren't relatively, they're not terribly expensive to run, yet they're still underfunded. Whereas, say, a school in Sydney's North Shore with an active PNC committee with a wealthy parent cohort gets plenty of funding. Now, I'm not saying that the public school in Mossman, say, is any less deserving than the public school in Blacktown. And for our listeners out of state, take your ritziest suburbs and, and then compare it to a suburb down the economic chain a bit. But you can fund in a way that is equitable. And one of those would be cutting funding to or cutting a lot of the funding to the private schools. I'm sure that there can be arguments made for some help to be given to private schools in terms of teacher training or but I think we've got to look at how the schools work in each state and make sure that the kids in Karatha in Western Australia are just as fairly looked after as the kids in Turak in Melbourne. Again that will require different amounts of money, but you want the kids in Karatha to have the same opportunities and the same access to opportunity that the kids everywhere else get. And Gonski worked towards that. He didn't quite say it, but it seems to me to be a fairer model than just to shovel money through to a private providers who don't perform any better than the public ones. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Patreon. There hasn't been much movement in the latest batch of opinion polls, but that hasn't been enough to stop the conservative media from saying that it's the end of the honeymoon for Anthony Albanese. The Labor government has taken a few body blows and it's the worst week ever for the Prime Minister. And it's hard to know what they're actually looking at because the opinion polls are more or less the same as they've been for a long, long time. And if you look closely at the polls, they've actually become even better for the Labor government. And we also had the real world event of an actual poll in the seat of Fadden last week, and that has also indicated not much of a change at all. But it seems that it doesn't really matter what the polls are saying, real or otherwise. The cheer squad and supporters in the mainstream media are going to keep saying that the Liberal Party are doing very, very well and are back in the political game when it seems that the opposite is true. I guess if you live in a fantasy world long enough, you start to believe that it's actually real. <laughs> Again, the polls mean nothing at this point. We would have expected somewhat of a drop-off of the popularity of the current Labor government given interest rate rises, given cost of living, given all that type of stuff. But having said that, what's the alternatives? We've spoken about the issues with the Greens that aren't all of their own making. So the general populace is not quite ready to go there yet. We have a terminally unpopular leader of the opposition and then lunatics and ratbags like Pauline Hanson. Essentially, things are unchanged since the election. Now, does that mean the government's doing a good job? In some cases it is, in some cases it's not. Oh, well, I guess also these are 
mainly statistics at this point. So the latest news poll did record 55% for the Labor government in support and 45% for the Liberal National Parties. Resolve poll is actually around 58% for Labor and 42% for the LNP. The Prime Minister is viewed more favourably by the electorate over Peter Dutton by a margin of two to one. But so far out from an election, these figures don't mean much. It's still an interesting report card, but it's not that different to what's been reported over the past 15 months. But reading most of the media reports, and of course this is led by News Corporation, followed by Nine Media and Seven West, closely followed by the ABC, you'd think that Albanese is on the verge of being overthrown by a caucus. And there is a rider here, of course, where Kevin Rudd was overthrown by a caucus in 2010 when he was way ahead in the polls. But I think the circumstances today are quite different. But, you know, it gets me thinking, does the mainstream media ever get tired of this, especially over at News Corporation? And the answer, of course, is no, they will never get tired of this. It's the same tactics that they use with Tony Abbott. It's just a different face today. But it's the same old tired strategy. And you just have a look at the headlines. Hip pocket hit as Labor tumbles to a post-poll low. Popular support for Labor has fallen to its lowest level nationally as the cost of living crisis begins to bite. Andrew Bolt went on to say, Albanese is in great danger, his worst week ever. And all of these people, Simon Benson, Andrew Bolt, Peter Credlin, Vicky Campion, it's like a sewer pipe that keeps pushing out the bile and the untreated sewerage. And News Corporation, well, a lot of people are saying, well, the News Corporation publications like the Herald Sun or the Daily Telegraph or the Australian, they seem like Liberal Party newsletters. Well, no, they are actually Liberal Party newsletters. These are propaganda outlets for conservative politics. And I know that they'll never change because this is their business model, but I just think that it's a diminishing audience and it's just going to keep getting smaller as time goes by. Of those names he read out, Vicky Campion, married to Barnaby Joyce. Simon Benson, married to Bridget McKenzie. I wonder how many readers know that Simon Benson is married to Bridget McKenzie. I think most of them know that Vicky Campion is married to Barnaby Joyce. But you've got to be very careful with conflict of interest. Again, our weekly call for a royal commission into the media in Australia can be inserted here. We want a good media. And it doesn't matter if it's right-wing biased or left-wing biased. We just want a good media, a media that tells the truth, presents the facts, and then presents opinion as opinion, doesn't try and mix them up. A media that lets everyone know what's going on in the fairest way possible. After a while, people start to switch off. I note that in The Voice, the No campaign led by the right-wing media is under no obligation to be factual in its pamphlet. Neither is the Yes campaign, but the Yes campaign has been factual. (laughs) The No campaign is not being factual. And this makes a big difference for people who aren't across the issue. And if your only source of information is one thing, which isn't really backed up by any fact or any sources, people start to believe you, but then after a while they stop believing you and you've got nowhere to go. I think that is a real problem as well. And there was a news poll published for the Voice to Parliament which shows a decrease in support. It's down to 43% for yes and 49% for no. And critics have been saying, well, we can't rely on news poll figures. Well, we sort of can, but whether these figures are correct or not, it's across all polls that support for the Voice to Parliament is falling. And for me, this is starting to have a similar feel to the Republic referendum in 1999, and that started with great support. But the longer that the debate went on, the support for the Republic dropped off. There were too many divisions within the campaign, and it was soundly defeated in every state on the day of the referendum. And it seems that every single mistake from the 1999 referendum is now being repeated for the Voice to Parliament campaign. There's been too much of a vacuum left behind, which has been filled up gleefully by the no campaigners such as Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine and a completely negative campaign by Peter Dutton and this is what happens if you don't control the agenda in politics and the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese this week came out to say that it was about time the yes campaign started to step up and it was almost like he was talking about it as though he was not a part of it and it was almost like he was suggesting that it wasn't up to him to muster up the support for this. And I thought that that was actually quite a strange comment, as though he is expecting the voice to Parliament to fail, and if there is a failure on this, that he doesn't want to have any blowback from it. 
And there also have been some suggestions that Anthony Albanese's election night speech about the commitment to the voice to parliament is similar to the election night commitment made by John Howard when he won the election in 1998, when he committed himself to achieve reconciliation by 2001. We are a nation of many parts and many origins, and we should never forget that, and we should see that as a tremendous asset. And I also want to commit myself very genuinely to the cause of true reconciliation with the Aboriginal people of Australia by the centenary of Federation. And he never mentioned any of this again, any of the words that he mentioned on the election night in 1998, and no prizes for guessing that reconciliation wasn't achieved in 2001. Now, while the sentiments for John Howard and Anthony Albanese might have been the same on their respective election night speeches, I think it's a bit harsh to say that Anthony Albanese has done nothing on this. He's publicly advocated for the voice to parliament. He's prepared legislation for the referendum to go ahead and publicly committed towards holding the referendum. Now, it seems like he's prepared to lose a little bit of political skin, but just not too much. And if the referendum is defeated, it will be the same result as doing nothing. And I know that might sound a little bit harsh as well, but the respective pamphlets from the yes and no campaigns, as you mentioned, David, they have been released, but there is no requirement for any of the published material to be factual or truthful. Here's the journalist Kerry O'Brien giving an example of some of the mistruths from the no campaign. I haven't heard the no campaign able to point to any errors or misstatements uh, from the yes campaign. Let me just give you one illustration of how the no campaign uh, runs its pamphlet. They, they do, I think it's 10, 10 reasons they say as to why we should vote no. One of them is the voice, it won't help Indigenous Australians. Now, how can they possibly say that? It won't, not it might not, it won't help Indigenous Australians. Mm. They are in no position to say that. I think you can argue a carefully thought through justifiable case as to why the voice is very likely to help by closing the gap on a number of areas simply because the policymakers will have greater access to the word, if you like, the, the wisdom of, of uh, grassroots Indigenous communities uh, when they are putting their policies together, which will enhance the quality and the relevance and the deliverability of the policies and therefore close the gaps. But to actually say, as the No campaign do, it won't help Indigenous Australians, they just cannot possibly sustain that. They just can't. There is a web of fabrication that is reflected in the No campaign, uh, but it is reflected in, in this pamphlet and it doesn't surprise me, no. And we could go through each of these different headlines. Uh, when they talk about it would be creating two Australias. It would somehow elevate Indigenous Australians to a position of greater privilege. The Solicitor General of Australia, along with a raft of High Court judges, senior preeminent uh, constitutional academics and so on, all of whom are saying essentially the same thing, that this voice does not represent risk to the Constitution, uh, to the court system, to the system of executive government. And you'd think that a Prime Minister wanting to guarantee the success of this referendum would at least stipulate that the material published by the Australian Electoral Commission of the respective campaigns, especially the No campaign, should actually be factual and truthful. But it just doesn't seem that this is the case. It has baffled me as to why they're allowed to do it. Every other AEC pamphlet has to have the truth as best can be ascertained. And I know that there'll be people listening saying, oh, but politicians lie about things all the time. Sure. Sometimes, though, that what you say before an election campaign is absolutely true and then you get into office and then it can't be true. There's been no campaign pamphlets delivered that haven't been authorised by anyone. That's completely against the law. The AEC are looking into it and I hope they find out what happened. But it's absolutely illegal to lie in an advertising campaign. You can exaggerate. So I don't know why in something as important as this referendum, you're allowed to put through pages and pages of unfounded and inaccurate claims that is only going to hurt people. 
And the No campaign has also announced that they will be targeting the religious groups who opposed the same-sex marriage plebiscite back in 2017 and urged them to also vote No. Now, it's not clear what the relationship is here, and are they suggesting that homophobic religious people are also likely to be racist as well? I don't know, but essentially this is purely about politics and the political aspirations of Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price. And it's reminiscent of the 1988 referendum question to guarantee religious rights in the Constitution. And the backbencher, Peter Reith, he targeted religious groups to vote against guaranteed religious rights. And to me, that takes a special level of stupid to actually get there. But it also pushed Peter Reith to national prominence, and he became a senior minister in the Howard government. So that's probably what's going on here. Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price dragging down their own people so they can get ahead politically. And at this stage, I think that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community might be in for some more disappointment. They've been promised so many things in the past that have never been delivered. Back in 1788, King George tells Arthur Philip to peacefully negotiate with the Indigenous people in Australia, only for them to be massacred and have their land stolen. Promised equal rights, that never happens either. Bob Hawke promised a treaty in 1988, that never happens. John Howard promised reconciliation by 2001, that never happened. Anthony Albanese is promising a voice to Parliament in 2023. We're not sure if that's going to happen now. And the way that I see it, the only way to reverse this slide would be for a new Liberal Party leader to come in and say that they've changed their position on the voice to Parliament and will now advocate for a yes vote. And I think a change in the Liberal Party leadership, that might be on the cards, but the second part of that equation, to support the Yes campaign, that's really hard to say. I'm still optimistic that Yes will get up. I think when it gets down to it, we will do the right thing. It might be close, but I do think we will will get up. Having said that, it's it's a much harder battle than it should be. The only really valid arguments to know are for people who want to start a bit further down the track, treaties and different types of recognition. And, and I actually get that. But the cynic in me says is that if we start too far down the track, it will definitely fail. Whereas we start small and grow is probably a much better, and hopefully grow quickly too, is probably a much better approach. It's better to let everybody in than only a few. And of course, the whole no campaign is about keeping people out. I do think, though, that it is a it's a referendum that can be lost through not much effort. So I'm confident, but I'm worried. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.